welcome to the Jewish's Podcast. Today we are going back to the basics with discussions of folklore. You all seem to really love the episode where I talked about vampires and werewolves, so I knew I had to do an episode dedicated to dragons and, of course, mermaids. I've been dealing with a load of construction around my place recently, and right now I seem to have a stuffy nose, so it's been a little bit difficult, but um, I'm hoping to get back to my normal schedule soon. I also have a new microphone. Please let me know if you like it better than the old one. I am definitely still figuring it out. Also, apparently, this is a me thing, my my home. My windows just started rattling recently, so I don't know if you can hear that. Let me know if you can. Uh, a bit of general podcast housekeeping. I want to remind you all that I have a Patreon where you can support me and therefore support the podcast. And you can also request specific episodes. So if you have a topic you want me to cover, you can request it there as well as show your support. The lowest tier is $1 per month. And I think that's all the general podcast notes. Um, let's just dive in. I know I could do a, a longer preamble, but I kind of just want to get to it. We have to do the folklore disclaimers. Like I mentioned in the episode on vampires and werewolves, it's important to note that we have a different perception of folkloric creatures, specifically, you know, dragons, than we did previously. And we also know that Judaism is far older than the word dragon itself. So when we look at these discussions, we are applying modern terminology and conceptions to far older beliefs for the sake of simplicity. And there is, of course, nuance here that we need to address, or at least acknowledge. So let's look at the etymology of the word dragon. The mid-1300s, dragon, spelled D-R-A-G-O-U-N, is a fabulous animal common to the conceptions of many races and peoples from the old French dragon, directly from the Latin draconum, uh, nominative draco, huge serpent dragon, from the Greek dracon, Get, uh, genitive dracontus, giant sea fish or serpent, apparently from the drac, strong or a stem of, oh gosh, this is really not great for me, dirkesthai, to see clearly, from pi, dirk, to see, source also of the Sanskrit darsata, visible, old Irish adkondark, I have seen, gothic gatarjan, characterized, old English taught, old Hydrogen. Uh, Zorat, light, clear, and Albanian dreit, or which is apparently light. <clears throat> Continuing on, perhaps the most literal sense is the one with the deadly glance. The young are dragonets from the 1300s. The femme is dragoness, is attested from the 1630s. The obsolete drake uh, is dragon is an older barring the same word, and the later form is another sense is dragoon. Used in the Bible generally for the creatures of great size and fierceness, it translates the Hebrew tunin, a great sea monster, and tun, a desert mammal now believed to be a jackal. So that's the etymological history right there. It is essential that we begin with defining dragons, as in truth, this mystical mystical beast can take many forms. According to Oxford languages, a dragon is a mythical monster like a giant reptile. In European tradition, the dragon is typically fire-breathing and tends to symbolize chaos or evil, whereas in the East Asia, it is usually a beneficent, if I could talk today, (laughs) beneficent symbol of fertility associated with water and the heavens. According to Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin, author of Sacred Monsters, Mysterious and Mythical Creatures of Scripture, Talmud, and Midrash, there are a few categories of dragons found within Western mythologies. 
the heraldic or true dragon, a giant four-legged reptile with huge bat-like wings, a wyvern, a similar beast of the heraldic dragon, but only with one pair of legs. Now, I don't know how to pronounce this one properly, so we'll, we'll try. Gwiver or worm, a huge limbless serpent, serpent that killed by crushing victims in its coils and with its poisonous breath. The lindorm or blind worm, similar to a gwiver, except it possessed hind legs. And the amphiptyr, amphiptyr? A limbless winged serpent generally reported from the Middle East and North Africa. So from this definition, we see dragons floating through Jewish texts as well as folklore. As with everything within Judaism, there are heavy discussions about what each creature is, particularly rationalists who denounce the supernatural and seek to remove it from text by providing alternate, more reasonable answers. This means that you may, may, you may have been taught something completely different or read texts that ex do not explicitly use the word dragon or tiptoe around it. Um, and that's completely normal. Most of us are taught those things. But if we're going to look at dragons, we must first start at the roots of Judaism and Canaan. The Tannin, as mentioned before, is a mythological creature dragon from Canaanite and Jewish mythologies. So in Canaanite mythology, it is a serpentine sea creature synonymous with chaos and destruction. It was often portrayed as having a double tail or multiple heads. If you go to this specific blog post on my website, you can see lots of different pictures that I've included. Um, and in Judaism, the Tannin is often conflated with uh, Leviathan and Rahab. And I will promise, I promise, I will do an episode on the Leviathan. I know people have asked it for me in the past, and I've just never gotten around to it. Um, but when you kind of open the Leviathan box, there's so many things in there that you have to go through. So I'll do it one day. <clears throat> Tenanim appear heavily throughout Jewish texts, including Genesis, when they are created. The term is often translated to sea monster, and then further translated to mean whales, large fish, or crocodiles. The serpentine perception continued into Judaism. Because of its importance in the Torah, dragons are often called tanin, though in later times they are referred to as teli, and are most often serpent-like creatures, much less like lizards than their European counterparts. It can be theorized that they are relics of the time before Judaism was codified. The perception of flying, fiery snakes, or serpents, however, is widespread in Judaism. But, but, like most cultures, Judaism, uh, Jews eventually created or became aware of other types of dragons. Isaiah 14.29 is one of the most memorable lines regarding the fiery serpents in Jewish texts. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod of him who struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a viper, and his fruit shall be a fiery serpent. Yosephus, uh, Antiquities of the Jews, 2.10-2. For when the ground was difficult to travel through because of the multitude of serpents, which it produced in vast numbers, and which indeed is singular in some of these those creatures, which other countries do not breed, Yet such are worse than others in power and mischief, and with an unusual fierceness of sight, some of which ascend from the ground unseen, and also fly in the air, and so come upon men unawares and do mischief. Here, these serpents not only fly, but specifically cause mischief, which is a, a seeming common thread through a lot of dragon mythology. Numbers 21 witnesses the story of the Israelites in the desert. Moses, who is unable to stop the Israelites from complaining, 
watches as God sent the fiery serpents against them, and they bit them, and many died from Israel. And the people said to Moshe, We have sinned against God and against you. Please pray to God that he will take away these serpents from us. And Moshe prayed. And God said to Moshe, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bit will see it and live. So these fiery serpents are frequently interpreted as dragons, like by Rabbi Gabriel Goldfeder. The Nehushtan, the bronze bull with the servant, was created in order to save the people who had been bitten by these little dragons. Um, And that's one of my favorite ones. When I first read about that, I thought that was amazing. I also think it's very funny that (laughs) they are... uh, they just couldn't stop complaining so much that God said, oh my God, literally, here are dragons to bite you, to stop you from fetching the whole time. So Isaiah thirteen twenty two declares that jackals shall abide in its castles and dragons in, in the palaces of pleasure. Her hour is close at hand. Her days will not be long. And this is again, another, just another reference that we see to a translation that can be translated to dragons. But there's a much more specific story, and that's of Rabbi Acha and the seven-headed dragon demon. It's in Kudoshim 29b, and it features the story of Rabbi Acha, who fights off a demon who comes to him as a dragon using nothing but prayer. I'm going to read this one. This one's sourced from Safaria. Rabbi Acha found no place to spend the night, and he entered and spent the night in, the st- in that study hall of the sages. The demon appeared to him like a serpent with seven heads. Rav Acha Bar Yaakov began to pray, and with every bow that he bowed, one of the heads demon one of the demon's heads fell off, until eventually it died. Rabbi Yehuda said, "If his son is diligent and sharp, and his steady will endure, his son takes precedence over him." And this is like that anecdote which is told about Rav Yaakov, son of Rav Acha Bar Yaakov, whose father sent him to Baye to study Torah. When the son came home, his father saw that his studies were not sharp, as he was insufficiently bright. Rav Acha Bar Yaakov said to his son, I am preferable to you, and it is be- better that I go study. Therefore, you sit and handle the affairs of the house so that I can go and study. Abaya heard that Rav Acha Bar Yaakov was coming, and there was a certain demon in the study hall of Abaya, which was so powerful that when two people would enter, they would be harmed, even during the day. Abaya said to the people of the town, Do not give Rav, Rav Acha Bar Yaakov lodging, so that he will be forced to spend the night in the study hall. Since Rav Acha Bar Yaakov is a righteous man, perhaps a miracle will occur on his behalf and he will kill the demon. Uh, and then we get the miracle that happened, right? So the next day, Rav Bar Acha said to the townspeople, if a miracle had not occurred, you would have been placed, you would have had placed me in danger. So that seven-headed, uh, multi-headed creature we see is very close to the Tanim that we spoke about before. Also, I think it's hilarious. They were like, we could just ask him to go deal with the demon, but instead we're not going to. We're just going to trick him into doing it, which I think is very funny, I have to say. So, of course, after we finish off with the multi-headed dragon uh, with Rav Acha Bar Yaakov, we move on to the Tanin Iver. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly because my brain immediately tells me to say it like Bon Iver, Tanin Iver. I'm dead certain that that's not correct, but it is what my brain tells me. So it is a blind dragon. It is believed to be the steed of Lilith, becoming her vehicle for evil. It is described in the treaties of left emanation, the Zohar Emek HaMelech, particularly in the writings by Kabbalist thinker and author Moshe ben Yaakov Cordovero. Cordovero? I don't know my brain told me to segment that. But um, there's not as much on this one, and I had a harder time finding 
deeper description. So I only leave a short description of that one before we move on to one of my favorite narratives regarding dragons, and that is Belle and the Dragon. So the narrative Belle of Belle, which is 14, 1 to 22, ridicules the worship of idols. In it, the king asks Daniel, you do not think Belle is a living god. Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? To which Daniel answers that the idol is made of clay, covered by bronze, and thus cannot eat or drink. Enraged, the king then demands that seventy priests of Bel show him who consumes the offering made to the idol. The priests then challenge the king to set, to set the offerings as usual, which were twelve great measures of fine flour, forty sheep, and six vessels of wine, and then seal the entrance to the temple with his ring. If Bel does not consume the offerings, the priests are to be sentenced to death. Otherwise, Daniel is to be killed. Daniel then uncovers the ruse by scattering ashes over the floor of the temple in the presence of the king after the priests have left, and shows that the sacred meal of Bel is actually consumed at night by the priests and their wives and children, who enter through a secret door when the temples are sealed. The next morning, Daniel calls attention to the footprints on the temple floor. The priests of Bel are then arrested and, confessing their deed, reveal the secret passage that they used to sneak inside the temple. They, their wives and children, are put to death, and Daniel is permitted to destroy the idol of Bel in the temple. Now, this is one version. What is the other version? Hmm? Hmm. To quote, in the brief but auto- autonomous I don't know why I panicked just reading that. For those of you who don't know, I obviously have a script. This is not from memory, um, but I'm reading my script. And for some reason today, my brain is asking me to sound out every single sound. So I almost read autonomous. A brief but autonomous companion narrative of the dragon, which was be 1423 to 30. There was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. In this case, the supposed god is no idol, but an animal. However, Danielle slays the dragon by baking pitch, fat, and hair to make cakes, barley cakes specifically, that caused the dragon to burst open upon consumption. In other variants, other ingredients served this purpose. In a form known to the Midrash, straw was fed in which nails were hidden, or skins of camels were filled with hot coals, or in the Alexander cycle of romances, it was Alexander the Great who overcame the dragon by feeding it poison and tar. So, we see a bunch of different versions here, and this is one of the things that I love so much about uh, Jewish folktales is that there are so many different versions. I remember a picture book that had another version, and I'm sure people who grew up with the Alexander the Great version are very, very uh, attached to theirs. But um, like I mentioned in, um, wow, like I mentioned earlier, we see here a parallel between Judaism and the surrounding cultures. And it's only going to get more intense because right now we're going to talk about Jewish imagery of dragons. And one of my favorite mentions of Jewish dragons is not religious at all, but comes from Tumblr. And there was a post that literally just said, Jewish dragons? Yup. And it had a bunch of pictures from the inside of Sidorim, specifically Haggadahs. And it went viral years and years and years ago. And I remember reblogging uh, re- it, favoriting it, or liking it, and thinking about it ever since. And it's one of the things that inspired me to actually write about it at all. So throughout the globe, Jews have assimilated and taken on certain stories to merge with their diasporic folktales. Hungarian Jews remember the stories of the... Now, we're all going to be very kind about how I pronounce this, because I have no idea how to do it properly. Sarkani? 
Sharkani, which is a Hungarian dragon, while German Jews may remember the regional varieties found in their area. Jews of medieval Europe were especially fascinated by dragons, as evidenced by their use of imagery in texts and art from the period. Now, again, if you go look at the blog, which will obviously be linked down below, um, you can find so many different art pieces, which are so gorgeous. Now, a lot of these works are attributed to Joel Ben Simeon, uh, who is called Feibusch Ashkenazi, who is a scribe and artist from Germany, but he was absolutely not the only one who created tons of work regarding dragons. Now, despite Abodah Zara uh, 3.3 seemingly clearly banning the use of dragons in Jewish imagery, to quote, in the case of one who finds vessel and upon them is a figure of the, the sun, the figure of the moon, or the figure of a dragon, he must take them and cast them into the Dead Sea and not derive any benefit from them as they are assumed to be objects of idol worship. These images not only persisted, but found themselves in synagogues across Europe, carved into stone, worked into the metal filigree of the decoration, even used to decorate the Aron HaKodesh, the Ark holding the Torah. Um, again, look at the blog, you'll find tons of different versions on there. And there are more than hundreds of references towards dragons throughout Judaism. Sepharia, which is one of my favorite, favorite research places, comes up with 19 mentions in Jewish sacred texts, uh, while folklore allows their inclusion at an even higher rate. So, in the end, what does Judaism think about dragons? They were around, and we were totally into them when they weren't biting us for kvetching, and that feels very Jewish, if you ask me. I'm going to take a quick break now so you can listen to an ad and I can go grab some water before we dive into the next topic on mermaids. And yes, I did in fact script that pun. I wrote it down. I thought it was funny. I laughed at it. I asked a friend. They said it was not funny. I'm including it anyway. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back. Welcome back. Hello. We are back. I have a beverage. There you go. There was some ASMR right there. Um, and I'm back to talk about mermaids. So one of my favorite Jewish topics. Um, and I... <laughs> I'm going to start this off with, I think I'm supposed to tell it somewhere later in the podcast. It's written in the script somewhere, but I want to talk about it now because I've decided I want to. And that is the story of when I was, I don't remember how old I was. I might have been eight or nine, maybe a little bit younger than that, but I was visiting some family and I got pretty sick. I got, I was a little bit ill and I couldn't really do anything. So they plopped me on the sofa and they let me watch H2O Just Add Water. And I became convinced. I was like, this is it. Mermaids are real. Um, mermaids are real in the most real sense of the word. And one day I might fall into an enchanted pool. And then I will worry every time I touch water. It'll be one of those sensations like, Emma, no, the condensation. And I, I just, I've always loved mermaids. I, I truly have. So I'm so excited for this part of the podcast. So we're going to dive in and we're going to have to go into the same spiel we had for dragons, vampires, werewolves. Um, on a side note, did you know that the word spiel apparently, according to some etymologists and some literature I've read, entered the English vernacular through Yiddish? Um, it's derived from the German spielen like playing. And so when you're giving a spiel, you're given a, a short play, a shortened version. 
Uh, and maybe I could talk about etymology another time. I really do love talking about etymology. I want to dedicate more time to talking about language, specifically English language, um, because that is what I'm getting my degree in. And I'm, wow, oh my god. I am less than two weeks away from finishing that. That's wild. Forgot about that. Uh, yes, so anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. The topic afoot, since mermaid have no feet. Mermaids. Now, according to the ever-accurate wikipedia.com, a mermaid is an aquatic creature with the head and upper body of a female human and the tail of a fish. Mermaids appear in the folklore of many cultures worldwide, including Europe, Asia, and Africa. I want to quickly mention that while we use the term mermaid to uh, refer to the upper body of a female human, mermaids versus mermen, I will be using mermaid pretty much exclusively as a gender-neutral term. Um, I could use merfolk, but I did not update my script to do that. So usually when I'm saying mermaid, unless I specify otherwise, I'm talking about the gender neutral version. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different mermaid mythos across the globe. Some people, like myself, find this fascinating and just enjoy the myths as they are. Some other folks, however, turn them into giant conspiracy theories where they attempt to prove mermaids in the corporeal realm by any means necessary. Uh, I remember a TikTok that went viral just a couple months ago with all the quote-unquote proof. It was painful. So there are the famous hoaxes, like the case of the Fiji mermaid, where, according to Wiki, the hoax consisted of a juvenile monkey sewn to the back half of a fish. Um, yep, here's the part where I was going to talk about, uh, mermaids and H2O. And I forgot to mention earlier, my older brother promptly popped that bubble. He immediately was like, absolutely not. Nope. Mm -mm." And don't, people aren't wrong when they say bullying can work. Um, when I announced that I believed it to my family, my brother was like, not a chance. So anyway, I didn't get a chance to believe in mermaids, but people around the globe every day decide they can through Photoshop, through deepfakes, through, you know, their cousins, uncles, brothers, best friends, goldfish's previous owners, salon owning friend's mom saw one one time when she was on a trip somewhere, that kind of stuff. So let's look at the etymology of mermaids. The English word mermaid is very simple. The English mer meaning sea, or I'm sorry, old English mer meaning sea and maid meaning maid, which is, oh, I think something just hit my mic, which is pretty simple, right? But these creatures go by many names and span literally hundreds of different experiences. Some are beautiful, kind, loving. Others are filthy, violent creatures intent on drowning and feasting upon your flesh. If you can imagine it, someone has written something about these mermaids, and chances are humans had these stories for quite a long time. There is also an important note that in many stories, including this podcast, in talking about Jewish uh, understanding of mermaids, they will be conflating mermaids and sirens as the same creature. And depending on your mythology, they share certain attributes, while I'd say it's more like a Venn diagram, but uh, here they are used largely interchangeably. I know that there are some people who do have content specifically talking about mermaids versus sirens, but I'm not going to dive too far into that one today. 
Um, before I go on, I want to remind you all that there are so many different kinds of mermaids. One of my favorites is the um, mythology of the Rusalka. Osaka? I don't know how to pro- probably say it, but they're an Eastern European mermaid, uh, Eastern European Slavic, and there is so much to be learned here. There's an amazing creator over on TikTok who has made loads of content on them, and that is Vlasta, who I adore. Vlasta is not only an amazing photographer who I've had the absolute pleasure of working with, but they have a zine called Gentle Hearts Unite, which talks about Eastern European and Slavic folklore. And the reason I bring this up, not only because I think they're lovely and their content is amazing and I adore them, but because when we are talking about Jewish mythology, it is heavily impacted by the areas which, uh, which Jews have lived, including a lot of Eastern European and Slavic Jews who may actually have memories of folklore being told to them using that specific name. And the folklore may be very much consistent with their non-Jewish neighbors. If kids start dying randomly in a pond near a village, it's not abnormal for all these surrounding groups to have created their own legends around it, feeding off of each other's beliefs. And I know that there is a heavy distaste around suggesting that Judaism is in any way impacted by non-Jews in the sense of what we believe, but I don't think this is a negative thing. It isn't always bad to say that we are not alone in this world. And I know for many, it's extremely uncomfortable. It used to be extremely uncomfortable for me. So as I keep talking about this, and you may notice things that are very similar, you might have noticed it earlier with Belle and the dragon, but I invite you to sit with this. Sit with the feeling of discomfort, of acknowledging that maybe there are parts of Judaism that have come as a result of the diaspora and even before that as a result of never being alone we have always had people around us and we've the very first jews came from canaanite polytheism the very first jews came with stories with history with mythology and it is okay to acknowledge and allow that in our spaces so i invite you to sit with that and then we're going to go to another disclaimer The term mermaid is not what would have always been used by Jews. In fact, many right now would look at me and say it's heresy for me to even say it, but by the modern definition, as I've stated earlier, it fits. So, according to Joshua Trachtenberg, who is citing Grimm in regards to Germanic beliefs, Nixe were mermaid-like creatures, though obviously they didn't use that specific term, who snatched swimmers in the depths, dragged them under, drained them of their blood, and then let their souls float back to the surface of the body of water, where the soul would then travel to find refuge under overturned dishes and pots. If no one freed the souls by putting the dishes the right way up, those souls would then then become water spirits themselves. The reason I mention this belief is that it was held by both Jews and non-Jews alike. And um, according to Tachenberg, many Jews, particularly Yekes, which are German Jews, believe that in order to find the corpse of a drowned person, one would take a wooden dish and float it on the water. The dish would stop exactly where the corpse was. Tachenberg mentioned that while the rabbi who shared this himself was a bit skeptical, he said that it was a godsend for widowed Jewish women who husband, whose husbands had died of drowning. They could go find their drowned husbands and therefore have proof of being widows and remarry. So they so should uh, so should they choose. For those of you who are unaware, uh, in order to remarry you as a widow, you have to have proof of it. You can't just you can't just disappear. You got to have proof. So. This is just a story related to water spirits. So what of actual mermaid creatures? 
this is where people start clutching their pearls, and that is a horrible ocean pun. You can keep count. For this section, we're going to again be diving into Sacred Monsters by uh, Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin. And I, in the script, in my side notes, had a whole very confusing moment where I was terrified about whether or not you say rabbi or doctor first, because I could not remember until I realized I could just look at the thing. For those of you who are wondering, um, I don't know if this is the official uh, order, but Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin puts rabbi before doctor. Who knew? Um, as a reminder, which I probably should have done at the, to- the top of the episode, citations are now included in my ca- captions, and I list them at the end. And if there is a correlating blog post to the podcast episode, so for example, I've already written a, pod- a blog post on dragons, you can find all my citations listed there. So where does Slifkin start with mermaids? How does he start it off? He starts with a tentative scriptural men- mention uh, regarding mermaids in Samuel 5, 2 to 4. To quote, the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face in the ground before the Ark of God. So they took Dagon and set it back in its place. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face in the ground before the Ark of God. The head of Dagon uh, and both the palms of its hands were broke off on the threshold. Only the body of Dagon was left. But Zoe, I thought we were talking about mermaids. Yes, I promise. If you're familiar with Hebrew, you know that the Hebrew word for fish is dag. So some scholars look at the word dagon, which is spelled like dragon without the R, and see the root word of dag meaning fish. Rashi gives the commentary that dagon's idol took the form of a fish. Now, Rabbi um, David Kimche said that only dagon was left uh, to fit is to say that the dagon had a fish from his navel down and was therefore called Dagon and had the form of a man from his navel up, just as it says his two hands were cut off at the threshold. And this is the explanation of only Dagon was left on him. The image of a fish was all that was left after both the head and the arms were removed. So essentially, if you cut off his head and his arms, he just looks like a fish because his bottom half is fish, right? Now, I also don't know if I'm saying Dagon correctly. Dagon. I'm assuming, but I could be wrong. And if I am, someone correct me. I would love to know. I don't mind pronunciation corrections. If anyone has ever wondered, it does not hurt my feelings, I promise. I just uh, feel in deep embarrassment for saying it wrong the first time. But I would love to learn. So, another mention of him, however, appears in the capture of Samson. To quote, The governor of the Philistines gathered to slaughter a great sacrifice to their god Dagon, and for festivities, and they said, Our god has delivered our enemy Samson into our hands. Rabbi Moshe, uh, Rabbi Moshe David Valle, who was an Italian Kabbalist, rabbi and doctor, who died in 1977, expanded on, I'm sorry, 1777, not 1977, expanded on why this was significant in regards to his mermaidness. The Philistines were so close to sanctity, and therefore the governing angel appointed over them, which is their god, was rooted in, rooted in Bina, the Kabbalistic term for one of God's sephros or aspects which is the secret of the great sea, and therefore their god was in the form of a great fish. And this is the secret of Dagon, which is of the numeric value 63, which is the name of Bina, a reference to a particular spelling of the Tetragrammaton that is numerically equal to 63, and represents the Sifra of Bina, which draws its power from it. 
And from its waist upwards, it was in the form of a man, to allude to the partial good that is there in the angels of the nations and their higher aspect that is close to sanctity. From, but from its waist downward, it was in the form of a fish, to allude to its degradation and its lower aspects. And now the governors of the Philistines gathered to slaughter a great sacrifice to their god Dagon, for they thought their salvation was from him in giving this righteous person in their hands. And all the more so that the handing over of him to them was done via seduction, and this fish was in the, made in the form of a man, has no, other, has no power other than seduction, just as the sailor speaks of this fish that is called siren in the local tongue. It is not known if they are speaking the truth, but in any case, the indisputable truth is that the Philistines and the radiant husk closest to sanctity and all its power is in its seductions and trickery. So here we do see Jews being disparaging or a little bit uh, doubtful, but they acknowledge that it exists within the minds of Jews regardless of that doubt. It is a solid, clear seed, and we see an interesting interpretation of the split of humanity an animal as being representative of a larger Kabbalistic spiritual thought. It's not some random random evolution, we'll say. So now let's move on to the Talmud. Rashi, one of, if not the most influential scholars of the Torah, writes on the topic of mermaids, there are fish in the sea with which half is in the form of man and half is in the form of a fish, called seren in Old French, uh, which is Bechor's 8a. Me versus French, truly. We're learning which languages I am comfortable trying to pronounce and which ones I am absolutely not. So Rashi is defining a creature that is called dolphin in the Talmud. It is important to note that it's not spelled the way we spell it in English, but spelled D-O-L-F-I-N in English. And as far as I could find in Hebrew, Dalit Vav Lamed Fe Nun Yud Nun Sofit. So when I say dolphin, some people think we're talking about regular dolphins. Other people think we're not talking about regular dolphins. And we're talking about what we would now call mermaids. So for this time being, when I say dolphin, I'm not saying that. I'm saying a mermaid. So to quote, the dolphins reproduce like humans. What are dolphins, Rav Yehuda said? The people, literally children of the sea. Talmud Berachos I'm sorry, Bechorus 8a, it might seem obvious that the dolphins are the dolphins that we all know, which reproduce like humans in that they bear live young instead of laying eggs like fish. However, according to Rashi, the text of the Talmud is inaccurate and should be read differently. This is how it should be read. The dolphins reproduce from humans, that if a person cohabits with them, they will conceive from him. Now, interbreeding is then possible between those dolphins and humans. Uh, humans, because interbreeding between regular dolphins and humans is impossible. So hence, the dolphins would be much more human-like, right? Uh, Tosafos confirms this. The dolphins reproduce from humans. Such is the version of Rashi, and so is and so is clear in Tosefta 1.5. They bear young and grow them from humans. Rashi and Tosafos aren't alone in screaming, mermaid, when they read that, because other support comes from a midrash discussing Moshe's plea with God not to grow angry with the Jewish people for worshiping the golden calf. To quote, why, O God, should you kindle your anger with your people? A parable. A king entered his home and found his wife embracing a Delphiki and became angry. His attendant said to him, were there to be offspring, it would be appropriate to be angry. But since there won't be any, it is not appropriate. 
The king replied, it does not have the power to reproduce, but I must teach her to not act in this way. Midrash Shemos Rabbah 43.7. Now, I'm going to read a larger chunk of Slifkin's text here, as I think it states it better than I ever could, but then also the last sentence did make me laugh. So, to quote, this midrash does not necessarily have anything to do with mermaids or dolphins. The Delphiki, the object of the wife's lust, was a Delphica, a three-legged Roman table, as some of the commentaries on the midrash explain. However, some other commentaries in the midrash understood the Delphiki to be a dolphin of the Talmud. This raised a difficulty, according to the version of the Talmud, which stated that these interbreed with people, for the point of this midrash is that this Delphiki cannot produce offspring with a woman. Rabbi Shmuel Strachon of Vilna, Rasha 1819-1885, answers that the Talmud is referring to a female dolphin conceiving as a result of a man, whereas this midrash is speaking of the impossibility of a male Delphiki impregnating a woman. According to all these commentaries who understood the Delphiki to be the dolphin of the Talmud, it seems they understood the dolphin of the Talmud to be a mermaid rather than a dolphin. It is difficult to imagine that they thought this to be a parable about a woman bringing a dolphin into the house. Which we all need to take some moments to process that. So we have a midrash about a woman being active sexually with a three-legged table. And it being interpreted that this table is, in fact, a merman, not a real dolphin, because bringing a real dolphin into the house would be improbable. But we're also seeing here that it's believed that uh, female mermaids can reproduce with humans, whereas male mermaids cannot reproduce with humans. They don't have that capability. So this midrash is... That's the that's that midrash, but the commentary is discussing uh, whether or not it's possible, whether or not it would even make sense to have this midrash be about that and to begin with. For those of you who are confused, this feels like a quintessential Jewish discussion. It is confusing, and Rashi in particular can feel extremely random, like the commentary on how Noah must have brought demons in the ark. It's it, it can sometimes feel a little bit out of nowhere. But uh, let's move on from this specific uh, commentary and go on from Rashi, because we saw him use the term siren, which, like I mentioned earlier, is used interchangeably with mermaid. We also see another mention of mermaids in regards to the laws of spiritual impurity. To quote, And everything that does not have fins and scales in the sea and in the streams, from all that swarms in the water and from all living souls, Nefeshachaya, in the water, they are an abomination unto you, which is Leviticus 11.10. The Midrash explains that, to quote, Hachaya, this is an animal of the sea. Nefesh, this includes the Salanus, which should be read siren, according to the Aruch. Um, I might have thought that this transmits spiritual impurity when dead in the tent like a human, as is the view of Rabbi Hanina. Therefore, it states, in Numbers 19.14, concerning the laws of spiritual impurity, this referring to man and excluding the siren. So <laughs> they're discussing whether or not um, these creatures are capable of spiritual impurity or not. And so not only are there mermaids, but they are included in our concepts of spiritual purity and impurity. So Rabbi Abraham ben... Uh, Rabbi Abraham ben David of Pos Posquires, Posquiers, 
1120 to 1197, describes the siren as a creature whose upper half is a woman and sings in a beautiful voice. So in the Midrash, to quote, it states that this serves to include the siren. This refers to the creature in the sea, which is similar in part to a person from the navel upwards and is similar to a woman in all aspects in that it has breasts and long hair like that of a woman. And from the navel downwards, it is a fish and it sings in a beautifully with a pleasant voice which I love that they include that. I love that they really need to make sure that we have the singing voice, which really points to a connection with outside mythology. So Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Rappaport explains in his 19th century commentary, and he states that the siren in this midrash is identical to the dolphin of the Talmud. He says it has, to quote, similar to a uh, it is similar to a fish with scales close to its tail with long arms in the form of a person. Now, some art rabbis argue about whether or not these mermaids could transmit purity in a human way, while some going yes, other I'm sorry, impurity in a human way, with some going yes, others going no, because of course our rabbis are debating are debating whether or not mermaids can transfer impurity in that way. Um, whatever conclusion they came to, I could not figure it out. It seemed like they just got to one of those things of we agree to disagree, because that's our favorite thing to do. In the 13th century work that discusses this midrash, they go over the use of the word silanis or siranis, which is defined by Rabbi Avraham Abeli Gombiner as a person of the sea. Rabbi Avraham ben Shmuel Gedalia explains further that, to quote, Siren, this is the person of the sea, which has its upper half in the form of a woman and sings constantly, and is derived from the word soul. One might have thought that since it is called a person and is derived from the word soul, it falls under the category of when a person dies in a tent and under the category of no soul shall become impure. Therefore, it states in the passage about the red heifer, this is the Torah, when a person dies in a tent, it is, spe- it is specifically a land-dwelling person who usually dies in a tent that transmits impurity, not a man of the sea. So there's another argument there, because of course we had to include another one. So what if stories of mermaids outside of that midrash and these subsequent 8 million discussions. So, so the Sifra in Parasha Shemini discussing fish states, Hanefesh serves to include this siren. Um, in some texts it is written Silanus, but this is an error. In the explanation of this word, which is Greek and Latin, it is that it is some type of sea creature with which the top half is a woman and the bottom half is a fish. It was told to me that the king of the northern region, who ruled in Denmark and Norway when he was passing in a ship by the kingdom of Norway, saw such a creature sitting in the middle of the day on the sandbank in the sea. When I stood next to him more than ten years ago, I asked him about it, and he was silent. I understood from him that he was in the doubt of the creature he he was in doubt if the creature he saw was a siren or another animal, because of the distance from view. And when the creature heard the ship's osphor calling, my master, the king, turned and looked at this great wonder to the king, who was sitting in the side of the ship facing a different direction. It immediately dove into the sea. But the officer and the sailors testified that it was a siren, and that they saw it. The poets made out that the siren sings in a pleasant voice, and perhaps it is called siren from the word shira, song. And I think that the mention here of Denmark is extremely interesting because everyone's favorite redheaded mermaid was written by Hans Christian Andersen, who was Danish from Denmark. Uh, I'm talking about Ariel, the little mermaid. And I think it's really interesting that we have discussions of Jewish mermaids from all over, truly. So one of the very interesting things about Rabbi uh, Slifkin's book, Rabbi Dr. Slifkin, my apologies, 
is that it seeks to find the rational understanding of what our rabbis could have been talking about. He blatantly acknowledges that we know that for a fact that some of our greatest rabbis did not have a great grasp on science, which obviously would have looked very different uh, in the world in which they lived. We know so much more now, and the rest of the chapter is dedicated to finding out what these mermaids could have been, including discussions of a discussions of a kraken, but I will, I'll save krakens for another time. But he goes over common theories, like the ones that mermaids were actually dugongs, which are similar but not the same to manatees, which is a pretty common theory. I believe it was um, Christopher Columbus who is believed to have made that mistake. Uh, so to sum it up, these are just some of the official stories recorded with official Jewish literature. It can be difficult to find other recordings of Jewish folklore, ones that are passed from family to family, especially because there's such a huge variety in what we call them, how we deal with them, how we think about them. So if you have a favorite mermaid story, especially a favorite Jewish mermaid story, I would love to hear it because it would make me so happy. Before we get into sourcing, as always, I want to say thank you to uh, everyone who left a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to say thank you to Chessy, who left a really, really kind review. They also suggested, suggested that this show be a little bit more like a Dial a Witch, where I answer questions. And guess what? You can actually do that. If you go to anchor.fm slash Jewitches um, or go to my Patreon, you can leave me questions. Anchor, specifically, you can record your own question and I can answer it there. Whatever works best. Or maybe if it gets popular, I can even open an email specifically for podcasting questions because I'd love to engage even more. I promise I also read every single review that you leave on Apple Podcasts. Reviews, downloads, subscribes, likes, they are hugely helpful for boosting the podcast, especially on platforms like Spotify, Apple, Google, etc. Um, so if you're not following, you should follow wherever you can. You can stay up to date with me on my Instagram at Jewitches, Twitter at The Jewitches, or sign up on my website, Jewitches.com. I promise I send like one or two emails a month. Not because I have restraint, it's because I literally only pay to send five per month and I'm always worried I'm going to use them up too fast. So with that being said, I will see you all again very soon. Here are the sources, which again, you can find in the captions. We've got Safaria, three links from Safaria. We have Ilya Rodov, Dragons, a Symbol of Evil in the Synagogue Decoration, question mark, Ars Judaica. We have Encyclopedia for, I'm sorry, Wikipedia for Mermaids, Wikipedia for the Mermaid, Mermaid of Fiji. And we have Sacred Monsters by Rabbi Dr. Nathan Slifkin, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend. All right, y'all. I'll see you all next week. Goodbye.